because this is what King's Landing really is all about, isn't it? It's um, it's speaking in, uh, saying one thing and meaning five others. And then there's also this guy called Grandmaster Paisal, who isn't a DJ. Um, how many times are we going to make that joke? <laughs> it's, uh... But it's funny every time. Everybody's got too much caught up in the Game of Thrones that they don't actually realise that it's not the Game of Thrones that's going to matter, it's the game of big, fuck-off, terrifying, blue-eyed, cookie-monster zombies. Hello and welcome to episode three of Shark Live Royal's coverage of Game of Thrones. This one's called Lord Snow, and I'm Matt. I'm Dave, hello. Yes, I switched it up a bit there for you, Dave. I introduced you the title before introducing myself. Yeah, it's yeah. almost... But but thankfully, my long minutes of experience in recording a podcast yeah. have uh, stood me in good stead. You can't throw me. I'm a you pro. You know where it's at. Okay, I so... Know where it's at. <laughs> so if you're... Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, what you've been missing out? We've already done uh, about what's it, let's say about a, I'd say a quarter of the book, but this time, what basically what, what we're doing every week, we uh, we break the book down into a section. We read that through the week, and then at the end of it, we talk about it. So we're up to uh, the third section. Okay, so shall, so shall we shall we start our uh, our discussion of part three of the book, which loosely follows the third Boy. episode of the series Game of Thrones. Which was called Lord Snow, hence our title of our uh, of our episode this week. So it starts with a chapter about Bran, okay, and it's um, it's a dream that Bran's having as he's falling towards the earth in his dream, obviously, um, and he's sort of falling. Yeah, he's falling towards the earth. And he's got this three-eyed crow flapping around near him as well, and he's having these visions. Uh, he sort of as he's flop falling, you can actually see what's going on in different parts of the. Of, of the of the map, if you like, of Westeros. So he sees his mum on this boat as, as she's off to, uh, to to visit King's Landing. You can see his brother Rob in the yard at Winterfell practicing. You can see uh, Ned and Robert uh, on the King's Road arguing. So he's having these kind of visions. So it's kind of a dream and also not a dream, isn't it? Yeah, it's sort of prophetic. It seems yeah. just it seems to be a dream about things that are really going on. I mean, it's easy, the, the big point of this is falling towards the ground, and he says, oh, when I hit the ground, I'll wake up. And the crows say, no, when you hit the ground, you're going to die. And yeah. there, are, there are bodies and bones on the, on the sort of, on the ground below him, which are supposed mm. to represent, you know, the people who've died. So that this, you get the feeling that this is, I mean, what's going on here? Is, is he actually in mortal danger? Because he's in a coma at the moment, isn't he? Well... I, never having been in a coma myself, um, I wouldn't know like kind of what that's like. But I can, I think there's so much narrative juice in this. You know, this idea of him wrestling with his own kind of life force. You know, like kind of you know engaging in a battle within himself uh, yeah. in order to in order to free himself. You know, we, we've seen it in, in classic works of uh, of modern art from the Matrix all the way to Tron. So yeah. um, I think this is just continuing a, an honourable tradition. Yeah, and there's elements of this that you can't rationalise either. You could say this sort of falling towards the ground is um, sort of his body's way of, of dealing with um, this, like you say, fight for survival. Um, but then these visions suggest that something external is going on here as well, because these things, as we find out later on, are actually happening at the moment. 
you know, and he, there's no way he yeah, could know yeah. that That's Ned and Robert are arguing. Yeah. There's no way that he could know that his mum's on this boat, unless I suppose he's heard them in the uh, in the living room. But one of them of Ned and Robert arguing, I think that's quite hard to see how he could know that without yeah, some he kind would have of external to be influence. Extremely insightful, wouldn't he, to kind of clock that what was going to happen between his dad and his dad's best mate was going to be arguments. Yeah, I suppose um, it's, poss- it's, it's possible to say, okay, you know, he knows Rob trains all the time, so that's why we'd imagine that. Um, he's As he's been lying there in a coma, he's heard his mum talking about leaving, so you can imagine her being on a boat. Um, and, yeah, he might know this, you know, picked up on this strained relationship while Robert was at the at Winterfell, so we could imagine that. But I would suggest that that is almost as big a stretch as just to say <laughs> he's just seen it all. But anyway. Yeah, and, I, and, and it's one of those other areas, isn't it, in the book where there's something magical could be going on. Like, there could be an explanation for what's happening, which is about kind of magic or, or kind of um, superhuman kind yeah. of things like the the um the, the cookie monster beasts that who yeah. look nothing like cookie monsters um who we the white, the the white walkers <laughs> the white walkers i'm calling them cookie monsters right oh, okay yeah. um uh we first meet them in the first chapter and then we you know there's this kind of more chat as that goes on and then this idea about the direwolves nobody's seen those for generations either um and then they turn up and and it's just another one of these things where the you know kind of bigger than this game of thrones that we seem to be being pitched into um seems to be this kind of almost return of magic yeah um or return of myth yeah um and uh and yeah like it's it's but it's it's so subtly done it's just like one little note in the whole symphony of the thing yeah um and i like that because much fantasy that I've read, and I'm no expert, I'll, I'll, I'll cop to that, but much fantasy that I've read does seem to kind of be uh, written, well, much bad fantasy, you should say, is written by authors who just can't wait to get to the magic ones. Whereas, like George Martin, sorry, the G-Man, uh, as, as we should correctly refer to him, um, is, uh, you know, he's having fun with his plot and his characters and his world. Like, the fact that magic exists is something that he's going to enjoy at some point, but he's not about to rush there because he's also sketching these characters really well and this this plot really well. Yeah, and I suppose in that sense, it's not really a fantasy book in its in its traditional sense, especially this first the first one in the series. It's far more about... Like it's it's a, almost a it's political just, intrigue story set in just a fictional, like entirely fictional place, which is what makes you know all you know kind of alternate world fiction any good anyway, yeah. isn't it? Like, well, I mean, I don't know about you. I you know some people may really just love hearing about kind of magic for its own sake. I don't really care. I'm more interested in like the way that fiction like this can reflect our own world. Yeah. Um, actually, the interesting thing. Um. Uh. I, I kind of I got. In an idle moment, I got sucked into Wikipedia earlier on this week. And one of the things I was reading, as you do, and um, one of the things I was reading about was the Plantagenet dynasty. So these are the kings that ruled England um, in between sort of... uh, I think the first Plantagenet king was like Henry I. And um, going up to Richard III, who was replaced uh, by Henry Tudor. Yeah, so it's just um, just before the Tudors, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's it's like a 350, 400 year period. And I tell you what, like, you know, George Martin, for all that I respect him as a writer, he's a a shameless thief. 
Oh like, yeah, he's based it on realize. that. Yeah, yeah. I know. It's. I mean, it's so obviously that's not news. I'm kind of playing that up. But like, <laughs> but I'm just. I, I just. I, I love that he's done this because part of me, when I was reading this, was like, this is kind of what English history could have been if only it was a bit cooler. And actually, it turns out this is what English history was. I just never learned it this way. <laughs> yeah. So, I, yeah, it's just, it was great. Like, you know, you've got all of this horse trading and all the third son wants to go and fight somebody else somewhere else. And, you know, his people yeah. claiming right to rule lands that they've never seen. And, I mean, the most surprising bit of that was Richard I, who's kind of the Daenerys of our own history in that he spent about 11 months in total in England. And yeah. and yet was like I am the king of England. Didn't even speak English, mind yeah. you. And uh, and and this is all a digression. But I just you know I like I like that what he's done is kind of make some really realistic politics out. Yeah, of yeah. I mean that that's that, that's part of where it draws its strength is that it's it's based in it. It feels realistic because yeah, it's 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 based on the bones, if you like, of, of real history. And he's uh, oh. he's obviously digressed from it in parts quite dramatically, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, did did you not get the the pages in your history textbook in year nine where they spoke about the zombies that came from the north? <laughs> There's a joke in there about Rangers fans. <laughs> but, um, um, oh, <laughs> oh, he went there, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> right. Um, let's let, let's so so, so Brad, Yeah. At the end of this, uh, Bran does man. Basically, he's falling, and the crow says, "If you hit the ground, you're going to die. What you need to do is start flying." Which I mean, Bran rather um, obviously thinks that seems a bit of a tall order seeing as he doesn't have any wings but he does it in the end Uh, i've got no legs never mind wings yeah and he he manages to he manages to fly in the end and uh, we get the feeling from that and we find out later in this part of the book that um that he's actually wakes up now and he's he's alive again um in Mm. a full sense as in he's speaking to people and can interact with his surroundings um let's move on to caitlin the next chapter um, she's on this boat on the way to King's Landing. This is quite nice because if you're a fan of the series, you don't see this. She basically leaves Winterfell and appears in King's Landing. So you get a bit of yeah. the journey here. And um, it's quite good. We, we flesh out her travelling companion, who's the master at arms at Winterfell, Sir Roderick. Um, is, I mean, he's a pretty hardy bloke because he, he obviously doesn't enjoy travel by sea because he's very seasick he's nearly killed as um there's a storm and he pretty much almost gets thrown overboard and just manages to cling on to the to the net to the sort of net and and get dragged back and um and yeah it just seems like a bit of a ropey journey for him and um you get this sense again of every mode of transport is perilous here you take the road and you could be attacked you take this uh, you, you go by sea and you could get dashed upon the rocks and um obviously you can't really do much flying. <laughs> That's unless you're Bran in a dream. One extra thing to say about Sir Roderick, actually, with this is um, he's in the in the series as well. You see them. He's one of his big features. Is he's got these massive sort of whiskers, like big jids that come down, <laughs> like massive sideburns, super yeah. sides. Um, super sides. That's exactly what they are, isn't it? Yeah, but he, he actually shaves them off um, because he because he, he keeps being sick. Sick. He gets it all in his in his sideburns, <laughs> so he gets rid of them. Um, and that's one of the reasons why you can go out in King's Landon and start asking a few questions because no one recognises him because he's not. <laughs> I think he says he that he's, he's yeah, he's like he's the last the last person who saw him without 
sideburns is like 30 years dead <laughs> something like that <laughs> um, so I and mean, obviously in the, in the series he keeps them all the time because we probably wouldn't recognise him because he's such a minor character yeah yeah I, I I have to say that I think that was one of the things you told me about when we saw it you were like it's like he came on screen instantly you were like oh yes Sir Roderick here we go look at those look at those sides <laughs> and they are like stupid. ponytails hanging from his the sides of his head they're yeah. just unbelievable like like Ordinary men grow beards. Men who are real men just comb, make a sideburn comb over <laughs> for their chins. <laughs> the, the great thing in the series is he just turns up and it's not even remarked upon. He's just like normal. It's like, yeah, what? Yeah. yeah. I've, got, I've, like, got, I've got the what? biggest jids you've ever seen, so what? <laughs> what of it, mate? <laughs> um, so we're introduced to King's Landing. Um, and it's, I mean, it's described, it's pretty much this chaotic mess of buildings on a hill. It's really, uh, it doesn't look like there's been a great deal of town planning involved. It's just all rather organically grown up with this massive red keep at the top. And then mm. um, just a, yeah, a, a rough and tumble piles of housing and other buildings all the way down to the river and, and the sea. Um, and I suppose that's that's quite a good, uh, the, the, so, another interesting thing about the way uh JR, what's he called? The G Man um, does uh, uh, sort of sets his world up. Is that the, the different places have characters as well? Because you get a feeling immediately from this city that it is one of those sort of dog eat dog, uh, you know, sort of red in tooth and claw, if you like. Um, yeah. Oh, uh, I like that. I like that. Well done. Excellent. Red. It's kind of like a. It's like, like claw. It's like a medieval city of London, isn't it? Yeah, but more imposing. Like, mm. I, I, I have no image for what the city of London was like in medieval times, but I think of it more as being... I find it easier to imagine somewhere like York or Edinburgh, you know, yeah. where, like with, with this kind of, you know, imposing fortifications. And, yeah, or, Edinburgh's good, Edinburgh yeah. Towering yeah. over the town, you know, and it's just... You look up to it. Actually, yeah. it's just like Edinburgh, isn't it? Because yeah. you can be down on Cowgate in Edinburgh, like, the, you know, in between, in this little valley, and you can look right up and see the castle. And, like, as, as the three-eyed crow flies... It's only yeah. about 200 yards from you, but yeah. it's almost all up, and it's so imposing. And yeah. once you're up there, it's massive as well. It's basically a town in this kind of position. Yeah. We get a bit of a history lesson where we hear that um, the Red Keep, this big castle, was built by um, what it started by the first um, that the invading the guy came over and actually set up the, the realm. It was called Ares, the, the, the bloke with the, with the dragons, and his successor, mm. Magar the Cruel, finished it off and um, actually got all these people to build it and then once it was finished, killed them all so that only he knew all the secrets of the castle um, like, which is, is quite a macabre history of it as well. All of them? I mean, yeah. how many people does it take to build a castle? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can picture the scene and it's a little bit kind of troubling, isn't it? This idea of like, yeah, it's good, isn't it? We're nearly finished building this castle. Oh, yes, yes. Yes, I shall go down in history for my small part in this magnificent feat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah looking forward to the, the bonus. I was going to say, looking, <laughs> looking forward to the feast at the end of it all. Yeah, funny thing, though. Turns out, King's only ordered, like, you know, pizza for ten. Uh, there's thousands of us. What's he going to do? <laughs> and at that point, the smart stonemason backs away slowly and starts thinking about emigrating to Carth. Yeah, yeah, it's a good call. It would have been a good call. I hope, <laughs> I hope there was been. one of them who did that. Um, <laughs> so Caitlin arrives in King's Landing and um, immediately Sir Roderick decides to go out and start asking some questions and he pretty much disappears 
And I mean, he, oh, he's yeah. pretty much he's asking pretty much... questions. Is he an old soldier in the capital city? <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's he's going up and down the uh, the, the the less savoury parts the, of the city purely the, on the business. Palace. <laughs> the palaces of negotiable affection. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but but yeah, he, he disappears, and this is pretty much him nearly getting killed for the second time in a chapter. And it, again, it just gives you the feeling just how dangerous a place this is because he's actually quite a guy who's quite high up in um in, in, sort of, in society. And yeah, again, you're only just one false move away from ending up ending up dead in this in, in this world, aren't you? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Which is enough. So basically. Uh, Caitlin eventually meets uh, Pete, uh, Baelish called Littlefinger, and it's two main characters: a guy called Littlefinger, or Peter Baelish as he's known, and Lord Varys, who's this eunuch. And they're two people who are on the the king's council, so they're about mm. as powerful as it gets in the city. And yeah. it's, it seems they already know about this plot and this knife, which uh, which Caitlin's carrying. Because if you remember, she's uh, she's trying to find out who this knife belongs to, which was used in an attempt to kill her son. And the big sort of twist at the end of this chapter is uh, Littlefinger says that it's his knife, but that Tyrion Lannister won it from him earlier in the year. Mm. And there's a bum, 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 <laughs> isn't there? Yeah, that drops on the floor like a, like a clanging gong. Um, yeah. Well, I I have to say, like I, um, I I don't know. Like I'm instinctively suspicious of two characters who are as powerful as this and who already seem to know about something that's supposed to be extremely secret and nobody, yeah. you know, and already know more about the how it happened than the person who was there when it happened. Yeah. He's a bit like, I'm not certain that I would go barreling in and taking all the information they've got to give me at face value, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. You know? Yeah, this is our first introduction to that, because this is what King's Landing really is all about, isn't it? It's um, it's speaking in, uh, saying one thing and f- meaning five others, uh, <laughs> often <laughs> completely at like to what you're actually a... saying. Yeah, 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 that's that's a very, very good way of putting it. Uh, we, we zoom all the way up in the next chapter to John up at the wall, um, and he's he's in the yard practicing. Um, so basically, this guy, this knight called Sir Alistair, who's in the Night's Watch, is drilling the new recruits, and John's basically kicking ass because he's a far better swordsman, far better fighter than any of the other recruits. Um, he's been given this nickname, rather insulting nickname of Lord Snow, uh, which is obviously mm-hmm. sarcastic. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the Lord, because he's from Winterfell, and Snow, because he's a bastard, and that's the name that you take if you're a bastard in um, in the North, uh, in this world. Um, Sir Alistair immediately takes, the the, tr- the guy who's training, is, obviously takes a dislike to him. We get the impression, as you read later, that he takes a dislike to everybody, but he, he has a special yeah. disaffect. Um, special hatred for for, for Jon Snow. How how disaffected do you have to be? It's your job to train new recruits and to be the sort of person who despises at least one of every new class of person that comes through. I mean... I don't know about you. I had a few teachers like that. I was about do. to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> every single teachers. <laughs> every single class. You just in 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 retrospect, you were just the projection screen for all of their issues with you know, 
underpay, overwork, anger and bad management and the rest of it, but they just bring all of that hatred in and pile it on the poor head of one kid in the class. Yeah. And this is that, but with swords. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's quite a, it's quite uh, a uh, argument. Uh, um, the, uh, we, we, something that backs up your sort of... Uh, you, you talked about your frustration, if you like, with Sansa... Um, and how you do? You you took a, a bit yeah. of a dislike to his character, and um, there's just a, a throwaway line here where John remembers that um, as soon as Sansa found out he was a bastard, she only ever referred to him as a half brother from then on, and I don't think any but any of the other siblings did, and it yeah. just shows again her um, just how I suppose um, how keen she is on um, everything being as it's set According out to, to be. The rules, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's, yeah, it's that total, total, never mind getting married to anybody else. She's she's married to the rules. Yeah. And she just, she derives all of her security, um, not from her brain, but from her understanding of the rules. She's a teacher's pet, um, you know, on a, on a kind of national level. It's frightening. Yeah. Um, the We find out that uh, Benjamin, uh, John's uncle, has sort of been very distant since they've reached the wall. You really get a feeling here of just how the Night's Watch is, is pretty much unique in, in this world. It's the only place that is a real, genuine meritocracy. There's no, you know, oh. there's, there's no class or um, everyone's equal and you're basically worth what you've contributed. So he, John does suddenly finds for the first time in his life... Um, that he is on a level with people who, you know, he, he would regard as servants in the past. Well, I mean, or worse than that, you know, like some of the people who end up at the wall, it says, are rapists and murderers and, and you know, just the kind of flotsam and jetsam of a society that's very, very kind of cruel. And yeah, yeah he's this privileged rich kid, of you know, for all that his, his stepmother hated him. Um like, you know, this privileged rich kid turning up and suddenly, you know, there's nothing between him and them. It must be an enormous shock. Yeah. Yeah. And it says and... a lot, I think, about John that he doesn't that he doesn't he's not more bitter about that. Yeah. He's quite bitter about that, but you know what I mean? You could see a more petulant character just proper kicking off and, yeah. you know, stabbing all the people who have come to fight him and then having a go at one of the um one of the instructors as well, couldn't you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um so there's there's a there's a part here. So, so John um, wipes the floor with his opponents when he's training, and he goes into the sort of a bit later on. He gets cornered by a few of them, and um, mm. the, the, he only gets only gets sort of escapes a real beating because the armorer called D- Donald Noy turns up and sort of intervenes, and then sits down with John and talks him through. Basically, tells him what's what up here at the wall, and <laughs> and, and and accuses him of being a bully. Um, which John's really upset about, and the reason he says yeah. it, uh, the, uh, the armorer, is because um, you know he's, he's saying, "Look, the, the, pe- the people you're fighting here, it's not a fair fight because they have probably never even held a sword before, and you've had you know 15 years of training from your master armorer." Um, so uh, you know, it, it's uh, it, 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 he, he gets John to look at it in a different way, and you see at the end of the chapter that it does actually sink in. It's a big lesson for John, this, isn't it, about leadership? It is, yeah. Yeah, well, particularly about leadership, because you can't, like you say, this is a meritocracy, so you can't have a, um, you can't have a, uh, somebody trying to lead just off the back of who his dad was. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, and what's interesting here is that the way he learns empathy is again in this incredibly unsympathetic context it's yeah. you know where he's sat down by this guy i forget exactly what he says but he's not polite to him at all he's not now nah, listen he's not a vuncular you know what no, I mean? he's no, not like no, now no. let me tell you a few facts of life son now it's all right you didn't know but let me tell you he's like listen you fucking bully yeah. stop this you know and yeah. really sort of smacks him down with it um isn't it interesting that like things that we would usually think of as being quite um, sort of emotionally kind of cuddly things, you know, empathy um, uh, and, and things like that, actually only happen in this book in the context of extremely harsh kind of warrior monk upbringing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, uh, yeah. I, it's it's a massive lesson for John. This and and again, you know, I think it says a lot about his character that he just takes it on yeah and sort of accepts it and, and goes with it you know yeah um okay let's uh i think that's all we we need to to say about that that bit oh no so so john finds out um at the end of the chapter that bran is okay and he's woken up and mm. um, he's, re- he's really happy and when he comes back into the sort of common room this is what puts me in a good enough mood to sort of act on this advice that he's been given where he says to Gren, who's one of the people he's been fighting, you know, I can help you get better, you know, and, um, you know, and yeah. he sort of reaches out to him and then he, he sort of makes a joke at Sir Alistair's expense, the, the sort of trainer, um, which, yeah. which kind of bonds him to everybody else and you feel like he's really made a step into the camp of you know being friends with people now but also makes yeah. him a, pretty much an enemy for life in Sir Alistair who we find <laughs> um, is, is not someone who sort of forgives and forgets very lightly not, not a man with a sense of humour happy-go-lucky is not a word you would apply to Sir Alistair Thorne is it? Absolutely not no. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair uh, let, let's shoot back down to the King's Landing and let's, uh, let's go back in to on it. a magic carpet yeah, back to Eddard, so we've, we've gone up and down again. And uh, th- this is our introduction, really, to, to the small council. Eddard goes before uh, what is effectively the group that are running the, running the country, running the realm. Um, mm. And it's made up of, it should be made up of eight people. So there's Ned, who's the king's, uh, Hand of the King. Um, mm. The people actually in the room for this meeting are Littlefinger, Who's uh, who we've, we've met already, uh, who, Varys, and, and and who absolutely doesn't have any kind of issue with his diminutive nickname. No, 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 <laughs> no certainly no. not. He's, he's cool with it. Yeah, he's very. Um, he's down. He's down. Yeah, who's um, yeah, he's an advisor. There's Varys, who's a, a eunuch, and he's he's also the guy who knows things. He he, um, it's his job to to sort of root out um, intrigue, isn't it? He he's on the yeah. council to to, to, to tell to the king out intrigue. Yeah, what's going <laughs> so, on behind closed doors? Seems to me he's meeting meeting Caitlin Stark and the rest of it. You know, yeah. like there's a he's he's causing intrigue. He's yes, yeah, not a he, trustworthy fellow. Yeah, he's um he's sort of in the same stable as he's sort of part. Investigative journalist, part MI5 agent, isn't he? <laughs> because he, there's a bit of both. He's, he's sort of an arm of the government, but it's his business to have various people telling him various things which um, other yeah. people don't want him to know. I tell you what, it is. He's like a privatized CIA or MI6, isn't it? It's yeah. Like it's like they've handed all of their intelligence gathering over to somebody who is extremely self-interested. 
Yeah, it's like yeah, it's like hiring a private detective to run MI5, isn't it? Really? Well, wouldn't that be terrifying? Okay, um, the, the other people in uh, in this meeting this time are um, Lord Renly, who is the bro- like the younger brother of the king, and we've met him mm. um, on the road already. But he's he seems this kind of happy-go-lucky um, character, as much as he can be in this world. He, he doesn't seem to take much particularly seriously. Mm. Um, yeah, and he's, also... he's the image of the entitled princeling, isn't he? Yeah, definitely, yeah. And then there's also this guy called Grandmaster Pycel, who isn't a DJ. Um, how many times are we going to make that joke? He's, uh... But he's funny every time. Because yeah. I've just got this image of Grandmaster, but he's just throwing down. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but he's, he, he is, in fact, sort of the, the top academic in, um, in, in, the, in the realm, isn't he? So he's the sort of chief advisor from that kind of standpoint. Yeah, um, I, I've got to say, actually, I've, we haven't spoken much about this, but I like the, the, the kind of Meisters thing, because they're kind of, they're, they're academics and wise men and healers and priests, almost. Even yeah. though there are, there's this whole other, you know, there's several religions and that sort of thing. But yeah. they, they have this kind of learned place amongst all of those things. And I really yeah. like these characters. It clearly gives them a great deal of power. Mm. Um, like, there are th- like, as with Pycelle. Yeah. There are three other people who should be on the council but um, aren't present at this. Obviously, um, Ned makes it five, um, so the total of five. Then your three others are um, the king, who's not there, uh, mm-hmm. Sir Barristan, who's the sort of the chief. Uh, the king has a personal guard called the king's guard, who sort of does what it says in the tin. Um, and Barristan is the sort of the, the chief of those. And so he's, lost... he's chief badass, right? Like, yeah, that's his that's his role in the kingdom is to be the most imposing mofo you ever met. Yeah. And then there's uh, Lord Stannis, who is um, Robert's other younger brother. He's the he's the middle brother between King Robert and Lord Renly. So Stannis is the guy in the middle, and he yeah. we find out is over somewhere else in somewhere called um, where is he? Dragonstone. Dragonstone, which is yeah. yeah. So it's so it's the whole kingdom is run by just pretty much these. Eight. It's kind of like a privy council, isn't it? Mm. And um, it is most certainly full of shits. Yeah. A, well, a. I, oh come on, that's got a, a bigger laugh there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, carry yeah. on. I, I was, I was. It was the reason I didn't laugh is because it's quite a good point, even if crudely made. It's because. Um, <laughs> so, 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 sorry, I'll be more polite next. Time. <laughs> <laughs> it's because um, look, when, when Ned sits down for this, it's his first real experience of the corridors of power, and um, and Varys says to him, um, he, he he basically apologizes for turning up late, and Varys says, you know. Um, that you don't need to apologise, we serve at your pleasure. And it's sort of, it's weird because on one hand, this, is, this should be the moment where if everything's working well, um, Ned comes in and he, this is his team and they sit around him and, you know, they say, right, yeah. what do you want us to, how are we going to get things done for you? But yeah. you, can, you already know, and he already knows, that nothing's as it seems here and that each one of these even though they're saying we're going to support you as much as we can they've all got their own agenda yeah and then some they've they've got agendas coming out of their ears i'm surprised they can all be in the same room together and remember each other's name yeah there's just so much plotting going on do you know what i mean yeah now the um we find out that the king very rarely bothers to take part in these. He's just he's pretty much given up on actually governing yeah. his own realm. And um, the only thing he's he's told them to do this time is to 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 lay on a really expensive tournament to honour Ned's arrival. 
Um, we find, <laughs> yeah, we find out it's the, well suited to the happy-go-lucky Ned Stark. If ever <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like it's as if he thought, "What is the last thing that Ned would want?" No, because he must know him fairly well. Yeah, um, but we find out that the the, the actual uh, the actual realm is is practically bankrupt and is pretty much being bankrolled by the Lannisters. And yeah. um, and this is Ned's shocked because he says when they actually took over, when they took power, there was loads of money knocking about. So it's all disappeared very quickly. And it's you yeah. get the feeling it's just the king's just spent it because he he can't really think of much else to do. He's he's yeah, he just <laughs> hasn't got a clue how to rule. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so they have this meeting, um, and then immediately after it, Littlefinger takes Ned to a brothel to see his wife, which obviously doesn't go down well. <laughs> the fuck is that? Honestly. Yeah. Like, I mean, especially given the fact that Littlefinger sort of carries a bit of a flame, or yeah. a, a, as it might be, carries a raging funeral pyre for Caitlin. Yeah. Um, like, <laughs> like, just the, the, the barefaced insult implicit in yeah. getting this guy's wife you really fancy and putting her in a whorehouse yeah. in order for him to go so it's just oh what a knob honestly yeah it's interesting I, in, in in the series you get the feel you, you're not 100% sure you think maybe Littlefinger does think this is the best the safest place for her and he's a bit shocked when Ned gets you know grabs him and pushes him up against the wall and asks him what the fuck he's playing at but um, in, in this one, in this one, you really get the sense of Littlefinger in, enjoying um, having a, something over uh, Ned, and also um, you get the feeling that he, he kind of likes the fact that he's, he's, he's stuck his wife in a in a whorehouse as well. Um, all the way as, as he's as he's leading him to Caitlin, um, all the way he's jabbing at him and he's poking at him. You know, there's a, there's one bit where yeah. they, they they walk outside of the castle. And, uh, and Ned says, we're outside. And, uh, and Littlefinger says, you're a hard man to fool. What gave it away, the sky or the sun? And it's sort of the thing that... He's, he's, he's completely insolent that's, to him, isn't he? That's and a really it, funny line. Yeah, but there's this real simmering just hatred of him, isn't there? Oh, you can yeah, really feel yeah, it. Yeah, it's yeah. really passive-aggressive hatred. Yeah, and, it's, um, and it is the sort of... There's something extremely contemptible in that at this point, and, and well, I don't know about I don't know if you felt that, but I already felt there was something contemptible in that, and I think it was because I'd kind of got into this flow of the world being about kind of like manly strength. I swing the sword, I kill the man I mean to kill. Boom, boom, yeah. boom. And yeah. and Littlefinger's power has nothing at all to do with such kind of basically honest mm. um, uh, endeavor, and and instead has to do with kind of like. Here's how I can fuck you up by saying the wrong things to you at the wrong times. Yeah. Um, and I just, I've re- I felt nothing but contempt for him. Which is funny, because it's not like I'm much of a swordsman myself. Yeah. I, I thought, um, I mean, I, yeah, I, obviously he's a character that you immediately dislike, Littlefinger. But I do think there's there's something to be said for, um, there's a strength in him insofar as he, he realises he's just, just this little weedy guy. He's never going to be a strong you know, he's, he's never, he's never going to have power in the traditional sense in this world, but there are other ways of fashioning it for yourself. If you've mm. got, if you've got other skills, if if you've got the sort of um, the ruthlessness to to use them, um, in, the, in a similar way that Tyrion does, um, he realizes yeah. that he's never going to do it through the conventional means to get a bit of power, but he can use his other sort of talents to to, to give himself an advantage. 
Yes, that's very true. That is very, very true. It's just, I suppose it's just seeing that arrayed against a character that's been, that's a protagonist that you like. Yeah. And you're like, you can't say that. You can't say that to Ned. He's Sean Bean. Yeah. Yeah. So, ooh, ooh, say that to Sean Bean and see if you get away with it. Yeah. No, sir. Yeah. So, so there, there is this um, impression of Littlefinger being uh, untrust, maybe untrustworthy, and um, sort of politically savvy, and Ned being yeah. honest and maybe a bit naive. But a bit of that is is reduced slightly insofar as at the end of this, when Ned meets Caitlin and they talk about what's happened, and he sends Caitlin home because that's just the, he wants to keep her safe. Um, and he also tells her to make a few preparations to strengthen the border effectively, um, and pretty much put them on a put the North on a war footing. Um, yeah. So he's, he's very he's very cautious with that. He's he's obviously thinking a few steps ahead, and he's he obviously knows he's he's now going to have to take this evidence once he gets something more substantial to the king to say, look, it looks like the family that's bankrolling you has been involved in trying to kill my son. Um, yeah. And he's not sure which way that's going to go. Um, so he is making yeah. contingency plans because he's not 100% sure about Robert anymore. And you really realise that explicitly for the first time now. Yeah, actually, I haven't got that at all. You're absolutely right. Once again, like I haven't I hadn't really thought of that. But but yeah, I mean, that's that's absolutely completely undeniable that um, he's... Well, he's thinking like a military commander, isn't he? And you yeah. get the sense that he kind of wishes that the small council also had strategic bottleneck points that you could send all of your bannermen <laughs> to to take yeah. using swords and spears and shields and horses. Because yeah. he doesn't have any of that. And he's, he's, he's you know, in a couple of chapters, you know, later on in this little, this little bit we're doing today, it's the same thing. It's like, you just, the thing you're aware of more than anything else is that he's out of his depth in politics. Yeah. And, yeah. and is absolutely kick ass on mm. the battlefield yeah and and so he's just you know it's like that what is it i forget who it was it's one of those quotes that gets attributed either to gandhi or martin luther king all over the internet it's you know um uh, everyone's a genius but if you uh uh, if you measure a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it'll spend its life thinking it's stupid. Like the same thing yeah. is like Ned's element is so much on the battlefield with a sword, yeah. leading leading men into battle, um, yeah. and is so much not in little rooms filled with kind of snide little guys with millions of spies who can take you to pieces while smiling at you. Yeah, exactly. Um, we we will move up. We've got a very brief chapter with Tyrion um, where he's he's chatting with the the commander of the night's watch moment um you get you get there's just two things i wanted to say about this one is another example of Tyrion's ability to get people on side he's laughing and joking with the night's watch now they're they're all seem to be great mates with it apart from sir alistair (laughs) who he manages to insult well Um, sir alistair doesn't have any mates though does he no that's 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 his thing he goes he goes to the corner of the staff room with his chocolate biscuit and his cup of tea and sits at the, <laughs> looks at them yeah. all, despising them for their laughter and happiness. Yeah, and he's also the kind of guy who you could insult just by sneezing, isn't he? He just, he's, he just, he's just ready yeah. to take offence. <laughs> That's true, isn't it? You can just imagine that. You walk into the room, so Alice is in the corner, and you just go, <clears throat> and he goes, you fucking what? You <laughs> yeah, fucking yeah. what? Yeah. <laughs> He's the kind of guy who was probably a terrible bully at school and then has been really knocked about in the real world once he's, once he's come out. And that's why he's become incredibly bitter. You know, one of those sort of really combative yeah. but not particularly gifted people. So, he, <laughs> he, you know, so, yeah. so when, when, you, when you come out of the sort of smaller pond, 
into the big world, you really get found out. And you get the yeah. feeling there's a, there's a there's there's probably quite a sad tale to tell about Sir Alistair with that. Uh, do you know what? Once again, you are far more empathetic than I am towards asshole characters. Because now you <laughs> now you say that, I can just see him turning up at the wall, and whoever's trying to train him is just like smacking him on the ass every day with his sword. <laughs> <laughs> And he's just, and that day I swore I would be a dick to everyone as long as I lived. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the other thing that um, that happens here is that basically uh, the, the Lord Command Mormont tries to convince Tyrion that there is some serious shit going on north of the Wall and they need more help. And Tyrion, um, by the end of the chapter, he goes up for a wander on the Wall and has a think about it and he chats to John. And he he says he he almost believes the tales, but he doesn't really still. And you you really do see now, especially considering is it Tyrion's a character that because it's a he's a POV character, you, you kind of you you, you empathise with him, aren't you? Much more than many of the others in the South, yeah, yeah, um, yeah who absolutely, aren't Starks. Absolutely, and yeah. and you think well. Yeah, this is a real problem because even characters that you like are struggling to believe these tales. We had it with Ned as well when the guy was saying, I saw White Walkers and he killed him, the, the deserter, and he didn't yeah. believe him. And you realise that yeah. even the characters you like and think are quite savvy um, are going to take some real convincing um, about what's going on north of the wall. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, you know, it's like turning up in, in Westminster nowadays and, and being like, Look, I know how this is going to sound, right? But there are werewolves in Clitheroe. I'm, I'm, t- I'm telling you, and it's fucking terrifying. And they are coming. They are coming <laughs> south. And Shit. and you know what? Credible lawmaker would be like werewolves? Shit! Thanks for telling me. I, yeah. I'm, you know, I've been wasting my time with these job creation bills, etc. But fucking <laughs> hell, we need to deal with the werewolf threat first. Thanks very much. Anyway, I'll table an early day motion tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, it's if that want... thing, isn't it? It's like, how can you be a credible leader and believe in ghost stories? Yeah, I mean, if we wanted to be, if we wanted to go on sort of the green campaigner footing here, we could say that you could draw a parallel with things like global warming, oh. where they're sort of such big and and not entirely, um, you know, such big ideas and th- and threats that yeah. the actual people who are trying to get things done day to day often think, well, it's a bit. You know, you kind of pay lip service to it and make a few tinkers here and there, but it's just too big a thing to and too far away to worry about. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's a thing that's so far outside the kind of um, environment you're used to living in and having all your fights in, and and that you've got to know really, really well, and all of this, you know, this kind of, you know, these political intrigues in Westeros are, are if death is coming from the north, mm. totally meaningless. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, but everybody's got too much caught up in the Game of Thrones that they don't actually realise that it's not the Game of Thrones that's going to matter. It's the game of big, fuck-off, terrifying, blue-eyed, cookie-monster zombies. <laughs> Let's go to uh, the next bit. This is Arya. Um, and this is... She, this is it's pretty much done in two parts. There's a bit where she's sitting down at the table where her, her father and the household are eating. And then she sort of leaves in a bit of a almost pretty much well she storms out effectively goes to a room 
And then eventually her dad comes up after she sends a few people away and has a chat with her. Um, the first part, I've not, I've not got a great deal to say about this, other than there's an, I thought it was an interesting little story about how Ned always has one or two people at the table, uh, at his sort of top table, who aren't always there. And he tries to get to know the the people who are serving him. And he has this, yeah. she, Aya remembers him telling Rob, um, you know, to to get to know your men and, and don't ask your men to die for a stranger. Um, and you just get yeah. the feeling that th- there's an element of politics, because this is still politics, that Ned does get, but it's the it's the darker, nasty underbelly which he just doesn't really know how to deal with, isn't it? Yeah. Put that way, he he sounds a lot more like my description of Sansa. He's very, very comfortable within accepted rules of like honour and leadership and so on. Yeah. But when those rules are not being applied by everybody, when everybody's not playing by those same rules, he's he's kind of all at sea and doesn't really know what he's doing. Yeah. So in the matter of kind of being a leader of men mm. and kind of and understanding how to get people to fight and how to honour them and that whole kind of noblesse oblige thing, yeah. like he's, he's second to none and he clearly commands spectacular loyalty from a bunch of total fucking wingnuts across yeah. the north yeah. and they're all like no no ned stark is my captain don't think i'm gonna mess with him thanks very much yeah um whereas you know you yeah again you put him in the in the small council and he's like did you just tell me a lie i, I mean, wasn't I th- expecting anybody to tell me lies yeah i, I think i mean this is uh, are we being a bit harsh on ned here because we don't he's not really done any he's not really done anything Stupid, has he? Or he has he? No, I don't although, think he has. But you just you just have this great sense of foreboding, is what it is for me. Yeah. I haven't seen him make any clangers. I'm just like, I just you just have this instant impression of like Varys and Littlefinger, uh, particularly, yeah. uh, and Pycelle, um being these kind of extremely devious characters who yeah. you know if you give them an inch, they will take the entire kingdom. Mm. And you can't afford to do that crap. And in his interaction with them, Ned has just kind of sat there going, I don't want the king to do this. Yeah. What do I do? I don't want the king to have a, a festival in my honour. And, yeah. and he's just, he's clearly, you know, he's just, he's a babe in the wood. He just has nowhere near enough guile yeah. to kind I, of, yeah. I, I, I suppose he he, um, he doesn't, yeah, when, when he is confronted with a problem like that, he doesn't think of... He can't see another solution other than either getting on with it and accepting it, or going to Robert and saying, "I don't want you to do it." There isn't the yeah, how do yeah, I manipulate yeah, yeah. a decision I mean, here, I mean, which I, is what I can't other imagine do. that either. Which is why I am not a political analyst. <laughs> okay, we're having a few technical problems keeping hold of Dave, so let's uh, wrap this up for the week now. Um, the only bit we haven't talked about in this chapter is um, just at the end. Ned actually, after seeing that, I. Uh, has got hold of this sword called Needle. Um, he's arranged for her to have some sword fighting lessons with this guy called Sirio, who we'll, um, um, we'll, we'll talk about uh, in the next part. Uh, but that, that's it for this week. Um, if you've got any thoughts on the cast or on the book so far, um, or on the next bit that we're going to read, uh, do send them over to uh, sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. That's sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter. That's at sharkliveroil. So if you're reading along with us, 
we're going to be going from next week, from page 219, which is a chapter about Daenerys, which begins, The Dothraki Sea, Sir John a moment said, as he reigned to a halt beside her on the top of the ridge. There you go. And we're going to stop at... Uh, the stopping point is a chapter about Sansa. So when you get to the chapter about Sansa, that begins, Sansa rode to the hands tawny with Septa Mordain. That's where you stop. And that's what the cast will be about next week. It's about page 283, I think, um, in the paperback book, if you've got that. Okay. Well, that's all for this week. And uh, yeah, happy reading and all that.